Thanks for that introduction, Dave. That was very kind. Um, and uh, you can see what, what kind of value he brought to the Charlotte board of the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank. Um, we at the Richmond Fed greatly appreciated uh, your service as the director of our Charlotte branch. Um, many people are not aware that the Federal Reserve System consists at its core of 12 separately chartered legal entities, separate uh, Federal Reserve banks, uh, each with its own separate board of directors. And ours, based in Richmond, has two branches, one in Baltimore, one in Charlotte, and each has its own board of directors as well. Our directors perform a tremendously valuable service for us by keeping us informed on a regular basis of uh, about economic developments in their locality or their industry, their neck of the woods, economically speaking. Now, don't get me wrong, we spend a lot of time poring over official economic uh, statistical releases out of Washington and the states and various agencies and the like, uh, but they're not by themselves enough. They're just simply not enough. <clears throat> Our directors and other contacts that we cultivate and, um, and uh, uh, reach out to on a regular basis uh, provide us with a wealth of very timely information. And it's about the why, as David said, uh, the expectations and plans of consumers and businesses, what they're thinking about the period ahead, what they're thinking about the current period, why they're planning to do more, why they're not planning to do more. Um, and through that, through marrying that with uh, the economic statistical releases we get, uh, we paint a much fuller picture of uh, the economy. In fact, the Reserve Bank presidents, all 12 of us, bring uh, this type of um, uh, on-the-ground reporting to every Federal Open Market Committee meeting. Uh, we meet eight times a year. Um, and if you, you can look back at the transcripts, which are posted online after five years, and see that in the economic go-round, each of the presidents is talking about what's going on in their district that they've learned from their contacts. Uh, so we're just terribly grateful for the service of um, uh, directors like David. This decentralized structure of the Federal Reserve System dates back precisely 100 years to our founding, as David alluded to. President Woodrow Wilson signed the act uh, into law on December 23, 1913. I apologize for not having a, a picture of President Wilson. Uh, he actually didn't appear on any money that circulated in public, so that's my excuse. Um, work began uh, immediately upon signing the act uh, to organize the Board of Governors um, in Washington and the 12 Federal Reserve Banks. And in November 16, on November 16th of 1914, um, the Reserve Banks opened for operation simultaneously around the country. Now, the founding of the Fed was the culmination of decades of debate about banking and currency uh, reform. And this was a very active debate. It was, it was, in, it was in all the papers. Uh, and groups like this would just be discussing banking and currency reform because uh, the problems in the banking system affected business, business people and consumers all over the country. Um, before I move on and talk about the economic outlook, I want to highlight two aspects of those debates uh, just to illustrate the continuing relevance of those debates for current controversies uh, that have to do with monetary and banking policy. And if you're interested... <clears throat> urge you to learn more at a website called federalreservehistory.org. That's the, the, resist, the result, that's the address, federalreservehistory.org. It's a new website we've rolled out at the end of last year in uh, connection with our centennial in order to make our history more accessible to a broad range of folks. 
I should mention at the outset, though, that my remarks reflect my own views and not necessarily those of others in the Federal Reserve System. Uh, but that's why we have 12 separate banks. So one of the most hotly debated aspects of the founding of the Fed was the number and location of the reserve banks themselves. Now, I'm reminded of this from time to time on visits to Charlotte when uh, the executive of a certain very large financial institution headquartered here would teasingly ask me, when are you going to move the headquarters of the Richmond Fed down to Charlotte? Uh, and I'll, unfortunately, no such plan for you folks, no such plans like that are being contemplated now, but it's... It's true that Richmond was once the financial center of the South, this, this region of the country, and it, but it's also true that this has been eclipsed as a banking hub by the Queen City. But we do maintain a substantial operational presence here. Our, our branch office is at the corner of Caldwell and Trade. It's catty corner from the Bobcats Arena. The broader question, though, that, that was in play 100 years ago was how many reserve banks there should be. One early version of the act would have created a single Federal Reserve Bank headquartered in some city like New York uh, with branches around the country. But this was simply unacceptable uh, to the populists um, in America and it tapped into the currents that, that David alluded to, the, the deep American hostility and aversion to large financial institutions and financial center interests. Um, instead, the act created this decentralized system of regional banks along with an agency in Washington now known as the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. That agency, the members of that, that board are appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate. Uh, and its role at the founding was to oversee the operations of the Reserve Bank. So until the 1930s, the Reserve Banks were essentially running the show. That's shifted over time. There's more power now at the Board of Governors. They have a lot of authority over uh, regulatory matters, supervisory matters, um, and uh, it shifted a bit, but still the Federal Reserve remains, as it was founded, with a, a hybrid public-private governance structure uh, that's fairly unique in American governance. At times in our history, this has proven exceptionally valuable to help insulate us from short-term electoral pressures that would that would lead us to conduct monetary policy in a way looking at the next electoral cycles. At times when we've done that, it's gotten us in trouble. And that independence, that ability to resist that short-run pressure has at times been critical to keeping inflation under control. But we recognize at the Federal Reserve that that independence comes with a tremendous responsibility uh, to be accountable uh, to the American people uh, through uh, the institutions of democratic governance for the results, the economic results of our conduct of monetary policy. So thinking back to the Fed's creation also illuminates our mission. We were founded in response to banking panics, which were very common in the late 1800s, and they culminated in the famous panic of 1907. There's a great book about this. During panics, a surge of concerned depositors would try and convert their deposits all at once into withdrawals. They'd try and withdraw them and convert them into currency, take out currency and coin um, to use and, and get their money out of the banks. But that, at times, would lead banks to suspend withdrawals. You'd, you'd go to the bank and they'd say, well, no, we're not, we just can't, we don't have the money to release to you. You know, we have the assets, but we don't have liquid money, liquid notes to, to provide to you. And that, that suspension meant you had your money, it was in the bank, but 
it made it hard to pay people, made it hard to do your business. And that was tremendously disruptive. And that's why groups like this all over the country were debating what do we need to do to reform our monetary system. So there were two intertwined problems to bear, and they were pretty interesting. First is that the U.S. banking system was incredibly fragmented. Legal there were legal restrictions on branching, um, and that meant that there were only over 27,000 individual banks when the Fed was founded, many of them small and rural banks that were incredibly vulnerable to localized regional economic shocks, like a crop failure or the like. And the second is that these um, Civil War era National Bank Act uh, had these provisions that made it really cumbersome for banks to issue currency. Currency was issued by commercial banks. The Bank of America would have its own little banknotes. And the process involved posting collateral, uh, sending it to the Treasury, and it meant that the currency supply couldn't expand rapidly when the demand increased. And that's what forced banks to suspend withdrawals and encouraged and that encouraged depositors to run to get ahead of uh, the, 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 the suspension that they anticipated coming. Congress therefore created the Fed to furnish an elastic currency, in the words of the Act. That is, to stand ready to supply, uh, to expand the supply of currency in response to increases in demand. Now, originally, the banks, the Reserve Banks, supplied currency by lending to banks. When we lend to banks, we credit their account with us, so it creates, and in essence, creates money when we lend. But over time, we, we shifted to relying on purchases of government security. So when we buy U.S. Treasury securities, we credit a bank's account, and that expands the money supply. And that's our main method now of regulating the supply of money that we put into the economy. The Fed's lending authority, in other words, was originally provided as a means of regulating the money supply. In other words, as a way for us to conduct monetary policy. If you read his, the history carefully, it's very clear that the founders did not envision us engaging in targeted lending to individual borrowers, rescuing individual financial institutions, or, or targeting market segments like the money market funds or commercial paper, um, as, as we did during the 2008 and 2000. Um, nine financial crisis. In other words, the Fed was founded to solve a monetary problem, not to rescue financial institutions. And that's, that's the relevance of our founding for controversies today. The, the continued relevance of these two issues, the Fed's independence and this problematic lending authority we're stuck with, I think really illustrates the value of understanding a little more about our history. And that's why I think it's so important to, to make uh, the Federal Reserve's history more accessible uh, to, so that researchers, journalists, um, concerned, interested citizens can explore our past, uh, examine the original sources, deepen their understanding of where we've come to, from, and perhaps even contribute to the debates themselves. And again, if you'd like to learn more, federalreservehistory.org. So at the risk of grinding gears a bit, let me shift uh, speed now and comment, as promised, on the economic outlook, uh, something um, close to everyone's heart, I'm sure. I'll start by noted, noting that you can be forgiven for being confused by the news coverage about the economy in recent weeks. The economy shrank at a 2.9% annual rate, we learned in the first quarter. And yet employment continues to expand at a fairly strong pace. Well, so in my view, the employment report is the far more representative uh, picture 
uh, provides a far more representative picture of um, economic trends than that first quarter GDP number that was so depressed. But rather than get caught up in all the chatter about uh, the last couple of weeks' um, uh, economic numbers, I think it's useful to take a step back and take a bit broader perspective. Last month, month marks the, the end of the fifth year of economic expansion that began following the Great Re Recession. Most observers, most economists, have been surprised by the, dis the disappointingly slow pace of that expansion. Since the end of the recession, real GDP, that's our best comprehensive measure of economic activity, has grown at an average annual rate of just 2.1%. In contrast, the 60 years before the recession, real GDP grew at an average annual rate of 3.5%. So maybe not much of a difference, but significant enough over a couple of years. Based on that long track record, a lot of forecasters, and myself included, were expecting growth to pick up to a more robust pace right after the recession ended. More recently, though, I've come to the conclusion that a sustained acceleration of growth to over 3% in the near future is unlikely. And given what we know now, it strikes me as more likely that growth is going to continue to average somewhere between 2 and 2.5%. And, and I'll explain why I, I came to that view. So it, it, it's helpful to start by thinking of the growth in GDP as the sum of two components. One is the growth in employment, number of workers, and the other is the amount of GDP per worker. So this is sort of a productivity measure, the amount of output of goods and services on average that the typical worker can create. So both of those grow over time. Uh, the first, employment growth. Second, productivity growth. When you calculate those two, you find that both of them have fallen since the Great Recession. So I'll take these in turn. First, employment uh, growth has been about two-thirds of the rate that we saw in the decades before the Great Recession. Part of that decline reflects structural developments, uh, just real developments that um, monetary stimulus can't do much about. For example, slower growth in the working age population. Aging of the baby boomers. The baby boomers are moving into retirement years where few of them participate in the labor force, and that's a drag on labor force growth. And the rise uh, uh, in enrollment, particularly uh, among the young people in their 20s, in educational institutions, a response to the widening gap between those with and without uh, higher education. In addition to that, we've seen a gradual secular decline in the labor force participation rates for people in the prime working age groups of 25 to 54. So the fraction of people aged 25 to 54 who are either working or looking for work, that is to say they're in the labor force, that fraction has fallen uh, uh, recently and it's been falling for some time. Some economists attribute this to uh, workers becoming discouraged about their job market prospects, and they argue that the unemployment rate, as a result, is understating the amount of slack in the labor market, and that when the unemployment rate falls further, we're going to draw in more people that are going to keep the unemployment rate from falling uh, much further. Now, our, we've done a bunch of research on this at the Richmond Fed, and it indicates that there, there always is more slack than is captured by the unemployment rate. There's, all, there's always been discouraged workers out there that aren't counted as part of the labor force because they're not looking for work, but they, they want a job. That's always been true. And if you tally it up and, 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 and do some 
logical adjustments uh, for various factors, it, it turns out that there's, there doesn't look like there's more extra slack than usual relative to where the unemployment rate is now, which is 6.1%. So it looks as if it's structural factors that are holding back uh, job growth right now, rather than a lack of stimulus, lack of pure lack of spending and demand. Productivity growth is the other component of GDP, real GDP growth I talked about, and it's been growing. Uh, it grew fairly rapidly in the early period after World War II, rising at a 2.7% annual rate from 1948 to 1969. Productivity growth then slowed, uh, rising at a 1.4% rate from 1969 to 2007. And since the fourth quarter of 2007, productivity growth has averaged only 1.0% a year, a substantial fall. Now, an active debate has sprung up among economists about um, future pro prospects for productivity growth. Some argued that um, major broad-based advances in technology are far less likely in the past and that we should prepare for relatively stagnant productivity growth uh, trends going forward. But I'm, I'm not so gloomy. Um, I, I'm just amazed at the historical record of technological innovations that solve a current problem and simultaneously open the door to all sorts of interesting new developments um, and new possibilities for future innovations. Productivity growth, growth is critically important because it's what drives growth in real wages and real household income, and that in turn is what drives consumer spending. So people who think, economists who think that, that growth is going to accelerate in the near term uh, often argue that a pickup in productivity growth is going to boost trends in household incomes, and that's going to set off an acceleration in consumer spending. And earlier in the year, it looked like some data were pointing in that direction. Recent statistics suggest otherwise, however. Indeed, consumer spending has fallen in April and May, the two most recent months uh, for which we have figures, and is up only is up about 2% year over year. And there doesn't seem to be a discernible trend in that figure. We've had about 2% growth in consumer spending uh, for quite some time. I think consumers are have been chastened, uh, just sorely affected by uh, the memory of the dramatic losses in income and uh, wealth uh, that they experienced during the Great Recession. I think they've been cautious about expanding uh, spending as a result. Housing market is also perplexed forecasters. During the boom, we built more houses than we needed. And now, then housing construction plunged. And even though growth has resumed, the levels of, of new construction activity are way below what we used to consider normal. And I, I think it could be a while before we get back there. Um, potential home buyers now seem much more aware and conscious than they were before of the financial risks associated with home ownerships. And so housing demand has been shifting towards rental, uh, multifamily um, rental units. In addition, there's an overhang still, a large overhang of homes that are associated with foreclosures and serious delinquencies. And that's dampening housing market as well. You've got people stuck in houses and we haven't sorted out uh, the right match between houses and, and the people that, that need to be in them. So I'm expecting residential investment to only make a very modest contribution to growth going forward. So these three factors, subdued productivity growth, moderate consumer spending growth, and a more tempered expansion in 
housing construction are are the keys to my assessment that uh, economic growth is going to average between two and two and a half percent. It's about the average rate we've seen since the the Great Recession, uh, while this expansion has been going on. The outlook in, for inflation is very important to us at the Fed, uh, since, as I noted earlier, monetary stability has been the Fed's primary mission uh, since we were founded. The FOMC is on record as stating that um, our goal is for the inflation rate uh, properly measured to be 2%. Many observers expressed concern last year that it got down to 1.25%, uh, well below our target, but it, inflation's averaged 2.5% for the last three months. So inflation numbers run hot or cold for several months at a time, but the latest numbers suggest inflation's bottomed out and is indeed moving towards the committee's target, and I expect that firming trend uh, to continue. Let me wrap up with a couple of quick remarks about monetary policy. The Fed funds rate has been at zero for over five years, and the size of our balance sheet has risen more than five-fold since 2007. We are continuing to expand our balance sheet, but we've been gradually reducing the pace of that expansion, and we're on track to end asset purchases by the end of the year. That will leave us holding well over $4 trillion in government securities and in mortgage-backed securities. By expanding our balance sheet, as I explained before, uh, with purchases, we've flooded the banking system with reserves. At some point, the economy will have improved enough that banks could increase lending substantially, leading to rapid deposit growth and mounting inflation pressures. In order to prevent those pressures from emerging and to keep inflation averaging 2%, which is the, the committee's goal, we're going to have to begin withdrawing monetary stimulus at an appropriate time. One way to do that is to begin raising interest rates. According to the material that we published, the FOMC published in connection with its last meeting, um, most participants in the FOMC meeting believe that the federal funds rate is likely to begin rising sometime next year. There are a range of views about when, but sometime next year is the, the broad consensus there. This is consistent with the, the FOMC's past practice of raising rates preemptively uh, before undesirable inflation pressures emerge. So to summarize the economic outlook, I expect growth to be modest pace we've seen over the first five years of the expansion. Um, I, this, um, it would be quite welcome to me if the acceleration that many see right around the corner were to come true, but that scenario seems less likely to me than one in which uh, spending and growth continues to be held back by household cautiousness, low productivity growth, and a, a relatively restrained uh, housing market. Inflation, meanwhile, remains well-behaved, but maintaining good performance is going to require withdrawing monetary stimulus at an appropriate time to prevent the emergence of inflation pressures. I thank you very much for your kind attention, Rotarians. Thank you. We've got uh, six minutes, seven minutes for questions. Any questions? Uh, 
Great question. Um, so there's so drivers. There's a lot of different ways to think about that. Um, some industries. The, the question is, what's the most important driver of the economy? I'd say consumer spending. It's two thirds of overall spending. That GDP number, that measure of overall economic activity, consumer spending's um, about seventy percent of that. Uh, so as con household spending goes, so goes basically the economy. Now, having said that, consumer spending is relatively stable compared to some other components like residential investment, business investment, uh, and net exports. Those swing around more, so you might think of them as drivers, but and they do have a, an important effect, but consumer spending is the predominant driver of growth in our economy. Mark? Uh, that's an interesting question. So it's the, the way inflation is calculated, um, interest rates are, are a cost in some sectors and for some components of consumer spending. And so as an arithmetic matter, raising interest rates does contribute to inflation. But it's, it's negligible. Um, and the, broader, uh, the broader way to think about interest rates is that uh, there's a, a real inflation-adjusted interest rate, and the economy needs a certain real interest rate. Uh, if it's too low, it's sort of like Goldilocks. Got to, it can't be too high, can't be too low. If it's too low, um, you get too much inflation. If it's too high, you get too little, too little growth. Um, and uh, that, that little arithmetic uh, effect uh, in which in, uh, higher interest rates are positive for inflation um, is, is negligible uh, in, in the, the grand scheme of things. question was, what's the probability of a near-term correction in the stock market? <laughs> no, nope. you wouldn't be here. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> I don't. I hey, certainly don't. You were discussing asset bubbles at the table before you talked. Thank you, Bob, for the honor of your presence. And Dave, thanks for Great. Um, two uh, important questions. One, are we targeting asset prices? The other, um, concern about velocity of money. We do not target asset prices. Our goals are inflation and maximum employment. So we want to keep inflation to averaging 2% and, um, and, and maximize growth uh, of employment over time. And um, we found the most effective way to do that involves paying attention to asset prices because they're informative about the future course of events. Um, asset prices build into them uh, the views of a wide range of investors all across our economy, many of which disagree, but their views get aggregated in, in the movement of asset prices. And it, it can tell you about what people think about future economic activity, and that's uh, an important thing we take on board in assessing whether we need to adjust policy or not. But no, we're not trying to engineer an increase in assets or a decrease in assets, right, specifically. Um, uh, we're looking through to our goals of inflation and employment. And then velocity of money. So um, 
Uh, this, this question has to do with the fact that, you know, I talked about how our, our balance sheet has expanded fivefold. So you might think that that would mean, you know, the supply of money going up, that prices go up by fivefold. Well, that hasn't happened because the, there's been an offsetting movement in something called velocity. And um, I, I'd need a slide to explain it. <laughs> uh, no, not concerned at this point. Okay. We got time for one more question, Phil Van Hoy. You could ask, so it's why, why is uh, Janet Yellen the only one ever quoted? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make headway on that today. I mean, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to help on that today. But, uh. great answer, great answer. Jeffrey, thank you so much. We really appreciate your coming. I want you to know that.